Our text for today is from our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 26. As we journey with Christ into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is being betrayed by one of his own followers, by a disciple, by a friend named Judas. And it says in verse 47 that along with Judas, there was with him a, quote, great crowd with swords and clubs. This great crowd, scholars surmise, maybe somewhere around 50, as much as 100 people from the temple guard as well as Roman soldiers with their swords and their clubs. And it says they came up, they laid hands on Jesus, they seized him, and then it says that one of his disciples drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear. Now we imagine that he was aiming for a more fatal blow to the head. We know from other gospel readings that this disciple actually was the disciple Peter. Peter was a fisherman. What does he know about swords? But Jesus turns to Peter and his disciples and he rebukes him and them. He says, put your sword back in its place. You want to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? At once, more than 12 legions of angels. How many make up a legion? 6,000. That's more than 6,000 angels per disciple, 12 legions. That's over 72,000 Angels in a moment, in an instant, at his word of command. In other words, Jesus is saying, do you not understand how unbelievably powerful I am that I have infinite power at my fingertips? Don't you understand that this is God's plan? I'm allowing this to take place. He says in verse 56, Jesus says, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And Jesus time after time after time himself has prophesied, has predicted that this was going to happen. He says, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to die. He said that to his disciples over and over and over again. Jesus knows this has to happen. This was God's plan to fulfill fill the scriptures. He even says this in verse 54. In verse 54, he says, it must be so. It must be so. It's what we would call a divine necessity. God has promised it. God has planned it. It simply must be so. It must happen. There's no other choice. It's here to fulfill what the scriptures have stated. It simply has to happen. It must be so. And if that is true, and if Jesus really believed that, that it must be so. Then why 
just moments before Judas arrived with this great crowd, is Jesus on his knees in prayer to the Father, and he says in verse 39, my Father, if it be possible, let this pass from me. Father, if this is possible, don't allow this to happen. And he just has said, it is a divine necessity. It must be so. Why is he asking if it's possible when he knows that it is not possible? It must be so. If it's possible, he knows that it's not. Why is he saying this? What is happening here? Well, we're peering into the depths of a great mystery, into the mystery of what we would call the two natures in Christ, that he is fully God, but Jesus is a real man, a real human being. Just like you, just like me, except without sin. And what we see here, as he's crying out to the Father, in this prayer, it wasn't just one prayer in one moment, it's at least three hours. It's hour after hour after hour as he's saying the same thing over and over again. If it be possible, he knows that it's not possible, that it must be so. If it be possible, what we see here is something, it's one of those rare glimpses into the inner heart of Christ. And we see here his inner turmoil, his anguish, his overwhelming grief in this moment. Look at the details that Matthew gives to us. He says that he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he takes with him Peter and James and John a little bit closer to him as he goes further in. And it says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. What does that mean? We don't know exactly what that means. But it means something like this. That my sorrow in this moment is so great. My anguish is so overwhelming to me. It could literally cause my own death. That what is happening within my spirit is so overwhelming. It is causing major physiological response. My sorrow is so great it could kill me. And the other detail that Matthew records that is so significant, he says in verse 39, that going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face. He collapses. What is it that is so 
troubling, that is so sorrowful, that is so great, that it causes the Son of God to collapse under the weight of the mere thought of it. What is so overwhelming to him that it causes the second person of the Trinity to tremble and to express this anguish and sorrow. I mean, I will say early church fathers, early church history, there were some of the early Christians who were embarrassed by this because this is God. God comes to the world and he's all sorrowful and full of anguish. They were somewhat troubled by this. What is so great that it causes the Son of God to collapse on the ground. Well, we know he's about to be betrayed and arrested, and they're going to beat him, and he's going to be scourged, and he's going to be stretched out on the wood of the cross, and they're going to take the nails that are about, you know, slightly smaller than railroad spikes, and they're going to hammer those nails into his hands, perhaps into his wrists, and into his feet, and the thousands of the nerve endings there, and the burning, searing pain, and then they lift him up on the cross, and in order for Jesus to breathe, what does he have to do? He has to push against the nails in his feet, and to pull against the nails in his hands to take a breath and it is a slow process of suffocation. And I doubt if anyone here has endured such suffering and pain in their life. But you know, there were thousands and thousands of people who were crucified by Rome and tortured by Rome. This wasn't wholly unique to Jesus Christ, the crucifixion. And there is even in history records, there are people and, and Christians who have endured the same suffering, maybe even worse, physical suffering with what seems to be a greater bravery than what we see here in Christ, here in Gethsemane. Again, the question is, what is causing him such anguish? What would cause the Son of God to tremble? It wasn't just the cross and the nails, as terrible as that was, but Jesus tells us. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Verse 42, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus here is speaking of drinking something. He's speaking of a cup. It's not the nails that were causing the anguish. It's this cup. This is metaphorical, figurative language. What is this cup that he must drink throughout the Old Testament? It is described as a cup of judgment. It is a cup of wrath. And I will read to you just two references from the Old Testament scriptures to get us an insight into maybe what was going on in the mind and heart of Jesus Christ. The first from Isaiah 51. 
which says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction. Famine and sword. Who will comfort you? This is a description of Judgment Day. This is a description of the judgment of God and His holy wrath against sin. It is His justice which is coming down. And look, this person, who will comfort you? They are all alone, utter isolation. And then Jeremiah chapter 25, where the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse. It isn't the nails so much as it is the cup that on the cross, Jesus Christ, the Son of God in our place, becomes a desolation. He becomes a waste, a hissing. He becomes a curse as He is covered in your sin and my sin and the sin of the world. Some of you maybe look, 21st century, pastor, you know, Angry God, wrathful God. I thought we were past that. I thought we were enlightened people. That's kind of primitive. Listen, I understand. But don't we, don't you long for a world that is right, that is good and whole with the shalom and the peace of God? Don't you long for a world where there is justice? Don't you want a world where there is no more warfare? Where there is no more poverty? Where there is no more racism and there is no more injustice in this world? Isn't that what we long for? For a world to be put to rights and to be healed. The question is, how can God rid the world of the darkness and the evil of this world without getting rid of you? How can God destroy the evil in this world without destroying you if you will look into your own heart of darkness? And the answer is Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus, again, what does it even mean to take the cup of his wrath? We can't even begin to grasp it, but we can see it in his anguish, in his sorrow that causes the Son of God to collapse. As the prophet Isaiah said in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 53, it says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. 
And it says, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, why is Jesus doing this? <laughs> he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He knows that it's not possible. Why is he doing this? Well, it's the will of the Father, and it's what was prophesied, and it says it must be so, and it's taking place that the scriptures might be fulfilled, and something else. One other thing as we close here. It's something that he says to Judas. that might even be difficult to believe. It says, verse 49, that Judas came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. He was betrayed with a kiss. And Jesus turned to the one who was betraying him and handing him over. And he said, friend, do what you came to do. Jesus calls him his friend. And he said, ah, he's being sarcastic. Okay, friend, do what you came to do. No. Jesus does not stoop to sarcasm. Jesus calls even his betrayer his friend. And Jesus calls you his friend. With all of your Betrayal with your denials, all the times you have turned away from him. And Jesus would say to you today, do you think there is anything you can do that would stop me from loving you? Do you think that there's any betrayal on your part that would stop me from wanting you to be with me? He turns to you today with whatever, he goes, you know what, you and me, we're okay. You and me, we're good. My friend. It's Judas who betrayed him, it's Peter who denies him. Jesus has just said before all of this in the Mount of Olives, he says, you're all gonna fall away. And they said, no, we're not gonna fall away. And Peter says, oh, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. The very end of this whole passage, verse 56, it says, all the disciples left him and fled. And Jesus is all alone all alone to face the cross, to take the cup. And what we should see here is that we, like the disciples, we are so weak. We cannot do it. We cannot be religious enough. We cannot be good enough. We cannot do it. We are so weak, but Jesus is so strong. Do you see his strength? We cannot do it, but Jesus can do it. Jesus did do it, and he did it. He took it all for you.
his friends. To Christ alone be all the glory.